Okay, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 8 this morning. Children, you're dismissed with Children's Church. Be very excited about that. That's good. Must mean the teacher doing a good job, not necessarily mean I'm not. I'm just saying. 1 Samuel chapter 8, Bible's in the back, grab one, page 132 uh, on our uh, Bibles that are back by the soundboard. Page number 132. So we're in 1 Samuel 8. Um, if, if you remember, just to give you a, a, just a few minutes update on where we're at, uh, Samuel opens up as the book of Judges closes. We talked about that. And there's kind of an overlap. We'll see that <clears throat> this, this, this morning. The era of the Judges in historical redemptive history uh, starts in really Judges chapter 2, verse 15. It says this, whenever they marched out, that was the Israelites. They had, remember, they went into the promised land. They had settled in the promised land from Egypt. They settled in. And Judges chapter 2 says, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord warned them and as the Lord sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress, the people of Israel. Then the Lord raised up judges who would save them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Remember, we said judges in the Old Testament weren't just sitting on a bench per se like we think of judges. They were to lead the people to repentance and restoration and, and, and bring them back to God. So that Judges chapter 2 opens up with this era of the judges. And throughout the book of Judges, um, the people of God sinned, rebelled against God, uh, didn't want to hear what he had to say. The Lord disciplined them many times, bringing armies into their land to crush them. They would cry out to the Lord. The Lord would send them a judge, lead them to repentance and restoration to bring them back to him. And although there are some many, many faithful judges in the book of Judges, it really begins and ends in the same place. The end of Judges begins with, uh, says this, chapter 21. In those days there was no king in Israel... Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the historical context of God's redemptive history as the book of First and Second Samuel opens up. I need to remind you that because things are going to change. We, we, so far as we opened up the book of Samuel, we've read about Samuel's faithful mom, Hannah, and to some degree, faithful dad, Elkinah. Samuel's born into this, born into this family, uh, Hannah and Elkanah into a dark time in Israel, but he was a faithful priest, prophet, and judge in Israel. God's mercy and grace was upon him, and after his birth, he was dedicated, if you remember, in the tabernacle of Shiloh, and he was called, chapter 3, into his prophetic office, and his first prophetic announcement was to go tell his mentor, the high priest, the leader of Israel, that God was going to judge his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And then chapters 4 through 7, what's called the Ark uh, narrative, they get into battle, a couple of battles with the Philistines, and they bring out the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember, as a rabbit's foot, some sort of lucky charm, rather than hear the word of God from the man of God, Samuel. And God allows the Philistines to defeat Israel, and they kill Eli, they kill Hophni and Phinehas, Phinehas is... They don't kill Eli. Eli falls down and breaks his neck and dies. They killed the sons. And Phinehas, one of the sons of Eli's wife, goes into labor and she dies. And remember, she has a son called Echabod. When the judge, God then judges the Philistines 
Everywhere they put the ark, they broke out in their boils and their, and their uh, tumors. And then they give back the ark. They don't want it no more. If you remember in chapter uh, 7, Israel learns their lesson. And before we get to chapter 8, you have to remember in chapter 7, Samuel receives the ark and leads the people as a judge into worship. Right? You remember that from last week? He leads them through repentance. He leads them through a recommitment to the Lord. And as this is going on, the Philistines attack them again, and God intervenes. They cry out to God, and God intervenes on their behalf as they're worshiping and recommitting and repenting, and God sends a loud thunder, chapter 7, verse 10, on behalf of Israel, and the Philistines are defeated, chapter 7, verse 11. The Israelites chase after them and kill the Philistines. It brings us to the first Samuel, chapter 7, toward the end, verse 15. As they're defeated, the word of God tells us in chapter 7, verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. He's doing his rounds. And what is he doing? It says he judged Israel in those places. Remember, not just sitting on a bench, just leading the people into relationship with God. Then, verse 17, he returned to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. He's a priest as well, and he builds an altar to the Lord. Now, chapter 8 opens up with Samuel slowly fading from the story. We'll hear a little bit about him, but not as much. He's old now. He's the last judge of Israel. Now it's time, as we will see in chapter 8 and chapter 9 particularly, the, this, this transition from a theocracy a people ruled and governed by God through his prophets and priests, to a monarchy, a people ruled by an earthly king. That's happening right now in chapter 8 and chapter 9. We'll also see in chapter 8, it is not the ark of God, but a king in whom the Israelites, an earthly king in whom the Israelites will place their trust and their hope. In some ways, just like the ark as a rabbit's foot. A way, a way not to hear the voice of God through the prophet of God. It's actually... A rather sad story, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Three things. First, their request for a king. They're going to seek to have a king like other nations. Number two, the ramifications. Saul, excuse me, Samuel's going to say, listen, you guys want a king? Be ready. And they're like, okay, we reject it anyway. We don't want to hear it. The rejection of their request. So number one, chapter 8, verse 1. Hear the infallible, authoritative, inerrant word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second son was Abijah, or Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet, verse 3, his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain they took bribes and perverted justice the scene the scene opens up unfortunately of a faithful man's unfaithful children sound familiar it appears that this unfaithfulness of these children is a catalyst for them to want a king it's not it's not the whole story we're going to hear more about why Israel doesn't want a king but it's the beginning it's a starting point there's not a whole lot said about Samuel's two sons here. We got, a, we got a little blurb. 
we know that Eli's sons, this is kind of like deja vu, Eli's sons, we know from chapter 2, a much bigger description, were worthless men. They were, they were un, unfaithful men. They were men who didn't know the Lord. They abused the worshipers. They abused the women in the church. And their sinful behavior is described for us in detail in chapter 2. But there's enough here in chapter 8, verse 3, there's enough here about Samuel's sons for them to be rightly concerned about the leadership of Israel and the future of God's people. It says they did not follow in the footsteps of their father, and, and they, what, they, they went after gain, therefore taking bribes and perverting justice. I mean, can you imagine how wicked it was back then? <laughs> I mean, leaders, public servants, and those who've been entrusted to care and serve others are perverting justice, taking bribes, running after gain. Oh, I'm glad that doesn't happen today. I mean, cultures change. Human heart does not. From Genesis today, the human heart doesn't change. But it's got to be tough for Samuel, you think? I think it's as parents, we, we love, we, we're called to love and care and discipline, raise our children to know Jesus. As a church, we want to come alongside you. That's why we have Wednesday night youth group. Send your children to youth group. We're coming alongside the families. Sunday morning, we have children's church for a, for a short season in between the singing so they can have a, 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 the gospel in their own, you know, age bracket. We even have Little Feet Dance Street, you know, a way to come alongside families with children the gifts that God has given us to our kids. But unfortunately, you know what? There's no guarantees, are there? You can be a good parent and your children can rebel and turn aside from God. Some, some of you were not even raised to follow the Lord. You're not raised in the belief of the gospel. In fact, your parents may have been totally against Christ, but you're here, you're following the Lord, you're loving Jesus. And, and here's the deal, as I think through this passage and the rest of Scripture... As parents, we are responsible, right? We have children, whether whether biological, their stepchildren, adopted children, forced children, and God has given them to us, and we raise them by God's grace and teach them and reflect the gospel to them. That's what we're, we're called to do. But the only one who can save them, the only one who could transform them, the only one who could rescue them from sin, death, and hell is Jesus Christ. Your parenting when all is said and done, cannot and will not do what God alone can do. Regenerate the heart. I say that not to discourage or to downplay or to disregard our role as parents. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that if you're here this morning and and you're full of pride or moral superiority because your children are walking with God, don't sprain your shoulder patting yourself on the back. Because if they're walking with Jesus today, it's by grace alone, like the rest of us. Also, if you've done what God has called you to do, or maybe your children are older, and now you, you've missed that time, you weren't, you weren't a Christian, and, and, and you're, 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 you're teaching them now, but you're, you're a little behind. Listen, don't sprain your neck holding it down in, 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 in uh, depression. Don't be hard on yourself. If you need to repent, repent. Receive the forgiveness of God. Trust God. Trust God with your kids. Pray for your kids now. You can't change the past. Work with them. Love them. Teach them. Train them. 
Ask God to work through his word and through his spirit to rescue them and redeem them and reconcile them to God. Samuel, as far as we can tell, is a faithful man who served the Lord honorably. The narrator really doesn't get into detail. I mean, we could really, you know, maybe go to the left or to the right and make some stuff up, but it says that Eli was passive. Eli didn't honor his, the Lord, that he honored his children. There's some things about Eli's parenting, but we don't hear a lot about Samuel. There's nothing in the text that says it was Samuel's fault. Some of the godliest people have the most rebellious children. We're, we're celebrated this week the going home of, of Billy Graham. Godly man served the Lord. Thousands upon thousands of people came to faith. Franklin was a rebel for a long time. We don't need to bring extra and unnecessary grief in every single circumstance and criticizing parents for the sins of their children. Guys, ladies, parents, serve the Lord. Trust God. Repent when necessary. Receive God's forgiveness and teach our children. I mean, that's what he's saying. But what's interesting about this passage with Samuel is Samuel assigns them to Persheba. You see that? As the furthest south you can go. And now, we don't want to read too much into this, but it's like, yeah, you could serve the church. You know what? Go to the very tip of, you know, India somewhere. I don't even want to, you know, just, just go over there. You know, I, I don't know. It could be like maybe he knew what was going on. Maybe he's getting a little bit older. He's not as sharp as he used to be. I understand that. I'm not as sharp as I used to be. Uh, but you guys need to go serve in Bathsheba. Now, the interesting is that judges were not raised up in Israel, they, they were not meant to be lineal, right? So the priests were meant to be lineal. They, have, they come from the lineage of Aaron. But there's nothing in scriptures that say the judges were meant to be hereditary. And here Samuel's just saying, look guys, you guys are the next judges. And they failed miserably and they were taken out. Anyway, the elders are like, nah, you know what? It, we love you, Samuel. You may have done a great job judging, but you know what? Uh, we don't think your kids are all that good. Look at verse 4. Then the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and, and Ramah, and they said, ah, you're old. Not like you're old and you got a lot of wisdom, we need to talk to you. No, I, I read it like you're old. And your sons do not walk, maybe because I'm getting there, uh, because, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now, what I want you to do for us is appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel, and they said, give us a king to judge us when they said that. Samuel prayed to the Lord. Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done. This is nothing new. From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, serving other gods, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now, the request for a king has all kinds of problems in it. But we've mentioned this before. It's not inherently bad asking for a king. The issue isn't give us a king per se, but to have the right kind of king for the right reasons, okay? It's not bad to have a king for the right reasons and for having the right king. So we mentioned this before too in Genesis in the covenant that God makes with Abraham. He tells Abraham, from you nations will come and kings will come from you. He says it right in Genesis. Genesis chapter 17 verse 6. When God delivers Israel from the bondage of, of Egypt in Exodus, he gives them the law. He makes a covenant with them. Um, in Psalm 74, Asaph 
looks at it and says, we have a new king. We have, we have a king, not a new king, but, but the king our God has delivered us. So this idea that God is our king is throughout the Old Testament. What's very, very, very interesting, I'm going to read it to you. I, I don't have it up on the screen, is God had, God knew, because he knows everything, that they were going to ask for a king way back in the rescue from Egypt. Now listen to this passage of scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 17, way before they get into the promised land, right? Way before. Listen to the word of the Lord. This is what God says in Deuteronomy. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, they're not there yet, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say... I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who's not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt, go back to slavery, in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has already said you shall never return that way again. Deuteronomy 17, 17. And he shall not, he, that king, shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn from you nor acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, which is approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, this law, he shall read it all the days of his life, that's the word of God, and that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and the statutes and doing them, that his, the king's heart, may not be lifted up above his brother's, pride, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, the word of God, either to the left or to the right, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. That is what the people should be thinking right now. They should be reminding themselves what God had already said in Deuteronomy. So if you want a king like others around you, fine, but he cannot be the kind of king of those around you. He has to be different. He has to recognize that God is the ultimate king and that God has spoken through his word and God has established his covenant with them. The one you want rejecting all that. There are many ways to reject God. You may be here this morning and just reject them outright. You're here for whatever reason, I don't know, but you don't want to hear anything about God. Save it, I reject it, I'm done. There's another way to reject God, though. The one way to reject God that we find ourselves in circles like this is to verbalize walking with Jesus, following he's king, and then going to do whatever it is you want to do. And you say, I will follow the Lord in your heart. You're saying, I will follow the Lord if he just, and whatever that just is, is a thing that's really is your king. Israel here is not content to humbly trust God. They want something different. They, they feel they need something that they can get their hands on, that they can control something they want. And the reason behind the request shows a complete lack of trust in God, faith in God, confidence in God. And, and, and as the story goes on, we'll see as, as the weeks go on, 
Israel's security, their confidence, their, their, their uh, safety was being threatened. And therefore, they were crying out not to God. They were crying out and seeking a king. Now, understand the contrast here. In chapter 7, they repented and trusted God. And God intervened and helped them crush their enemies. But now they're saying, we want a king like all the other people around us. We, we don't want to be different. The Bible says that God has chosen Israel out of all the nations to be his own treasured possession. God said to Israel in Leviticus 20, that you are holy unto me. Because I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you, Israel, apart from all the nations to be my own. It was a privilege. It, it was a privilege that they enjoyed. God called Israel his very own. They were, they were meant to be different. But now they just want to be the same as everyone else around them. And the elders were seeking, in effect, to opt out of the covenant. To be different, to be holy, to be one with God, to be separate from the world. And they wanted to now join their own pagan covenant and culture around them. And just as Israel is called to be different, guess what, family? Christians are called to be different. Peter says the same thing, be ye holy as I am holy. Turn from sin and be dedicated to God. But many times we don't want to be different. We don't want to stand out. We prefer to blend in, don't we? And we're we're pressured to conform. But as believers in Jesus Christ, as part of God's people, we're called to be different from the world around us. The agenda that we follow is not the agenda of the world. Uh, We're called to be different from the world. Uh, We're supposed to have a different lifestyle, follow a different ways. We follow a different king. We march to a beat of a different drummer, as they say. And whenever I mention that, and and, and that's important and that's true, I have to say different but not arrogant. Different but not unloving. Different but not separatist, run from people. Totally disengaged from culture. We are to live our lives in such a way that others will see that Jesus is our king. And, And that should affect us and our behavior and the way we treat our wives or treat our husbands or treat our employers. It should look different in how we consume and uh, use our money. It should affect the way in which we handle our children, the use of our time. That's the stuff that should be different. So yeah, we're going to have a king like everybody else, but our king's going to be different. So yeah, I'm dealing with life, I'm dealing with kids, I'm dealing with money, I'm dealing with struggle, I'm dealing with stress. I'm doing all the things you and I are doing together. I'm just doing it differently because I have Jesus as my King and Lord. That's what that's supposed to look like. Whether it's, whether it's the use of our time or how about this one? The use of Facebook. <laughs> Samuel's not impressed with their request. He prays, verse 6. Good idea because I could imagine if it was me, I would just tee off on them. But he's like, you know what? I'm going to go pray (laughs) because I don't even want to say anything. Come out of my mouth. It may not be good. I'm going to talk to the the Lord. Verse 7, God tells him, okay, I hear your prayer, Samuel, but this is what I want you to do. Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. Obey them, all that they say to you. They've rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds they have rejected you, excuse me, deeds they have done 
from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're also doing it to you. So Samuel is a godly man. He's not teeing off on them. He goes to the, goes to the Lord in prayer. And, and family, isn't that true? At times when we are angry, at times when we are distraught, at times of those that we are, we just want to jump in, man. I, I, I'm that way. I need to just stop and pray. God's the king, and they're asking for a substitute, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to pray. Because ultimately, think about it, they're not really rejecting Samuel, right? That's what God tells them. And God's encouraging him, I think. Samuel, listen, I know it seems like you've been judging them for a long time. You've been acting as their priest. You've been sacrificing. You've done plenty for these people, and you feel like you've been rejected. It's not you, man. Ultimately, it's me they're rejecting, right? I mean, that's what he's saying. And they're rejecting him for the same reason. They don't want to heed God. They don't want to heed his word. They don't want to follow his ways. And they're like, you represent all that, so get out of here. We're not listening to what you have to say. Now, we could take this, especially pastors, leaders, could take this to a different extreme, right? So we could could give counsel... And then we could, when that's rejected, we could automatically say, you're not rejecting me, you're rejecting the Lord. And that could be true. But it's not an excuse to treat people poorly or unlovingly. And then they say, no, uh, you're rejecting God, you're not rejecting me. No, I'm rejecting your arrogant, unloving, careless concern about me. That's what I'm rejecting. Because you're just mean, right? We don't want to do that. But there are times when people will see you as the representative of the Lord Jesus. And when you love them and care for them and, and respect them but carefully show them, they'll reject you because they don't want to hear from God. There's got to be a balance. Are you loving them? Are you caring for them? Are you showing them in love what it means to follow the Lord? So number one, the request of a king. Number two, the ramifications. Again, hear the word of the Lord. First Samuel chapter 8, pick up verse 9. Now then, obey their voice only... You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. Now, verse 11, follow me now. Listen to this. Listen to what he's saying. Pick up the verbs. He said, this is what's going to happen, the ramifications. These will be the ways of the king who reign over you. He will Take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run it before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. Verse 15. He will take the Tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your men, donkeys, and put them to work. Verse 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slave. And in that day, you shall be his slave. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer. On that day. So many his in there. I underlined them. There's 12 of them. 
his this, his that. Selfish, selfish, selfish king. And the word take, six times. I'm taking your sons. I'm taking your daughters. I'm taking your crops. I'm taking your land. I'm selfishly exploiting you for myself. What's interesting is the verb take also is the same verb used with Eli's sons who were taking from that pot of sacrifice, the choice meat. They were taking from the offerers who said, you know what, maybe we shouldn't do it this way because this is what the Lord, oh, we're just going to take it from you. It's what Samuel's sons were doing, were taking bribes. In other words, Samuel's like, listen, you want a king? You got it. Enjoy the same, if not more, self-serving muscle that they experienced at the hand of Eli's sons and Samuel's sons. Taxation, oppression under a king, placing burdens on their citizens, in effect, reducing them to slaves. Got kind of a New York feel, doesn't it? No, never mind, I'm sorry. But The irony is remarkable. The Israelites are looking for liberation. They want prosperity. They want security. But instead, they receive a king who will take those things from them. They want to control the king, but what turns out, what Samuel is saying is the king is going to control them. Israel was not supposed to evade having a king, but they were supposed to avoid being consumed by the king. And that's what you hear over and over. I'm taken, I'm taken, you will be my slave. Being consumed by something other than turning to God and being consumed by something other than God is is called what, family? Idolatry. Good. We talk about it a lot here. Tim Keller. If you have never read Counterfeit Gods, I recommend that book to you. Counterfeit gods. He says this about idols. Anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you is an idol. He says a counterfeit God, an idol, is anything so central, so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living, end quote. Whenever life is, is, is consumed with things, even good things, It'll show us that God has been displaced. He, he, he has less weight. That's what glory means. Less weight than other things. And, and we get into this joylessness in life, this anxiety, this depression, and this bondage. And if Israel consist, excuse me, insisted on rejecting their divine king, it'll be like they're going back to slavery in Egypt. They would find themselves in slavery. And this time, God's not going to hear their cry. I mean, not like he doesn't hear it. He's not responding. What a contrast of verse 7, chapter 7, excuse me. The ark is returned. Samuel intercedes. There's repentance. There's gathering together of God's people. They're hearing God's word. So I walk away with this thinking, you know, wanting something that may seem so right. Now listen to this. Wanting something that may seem so right and so good does not necessarily mean it is good for us. Reminds me of C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Give us a king. We don't want that. You know, idols offer us freedom. Idols offer us pleasure. Idols offer us a, 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 a way out, but idols enslave us. So 
So the question is, what are you trusting in? What are you relying in as your ultimate joy? What are you relying on as your ultimate contentment, satisfaction, meaning, security in your life? Whatever you depend on, that thing other than God will put you into slavery. Even good things. Maybe some of you desire to be married. And when you're not married, you're depressed. You're, or, or you so have such a desire over following and hearing the voice of God that you make bad decisions, bad relationships. And then when you do get married, it's such a codependent relationship rather than interdependent covenant relationship because marriage is your God. Or maybe money or, or power or, 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 or success. And you know what? You overwork. And your resentment, you're resentful. When people, you'll know this, if you see people around you gaining, if you see people around you making more strides than you, getting promotions that you don't get, getting more wealth, and you get resentful, it may be because money is your idol. It can destroy families. It can give you a, a stroke. Well, that's how addictions happen, don't it, too? We replace relationships Intimacy with physical pleasure. The physical pleasure of the addiction replaces intimate relationships, particularly with the Lord our God, and we worship drugs, alcohol. Every person has a king, right? Whatever you must have in order to be satisfied, content, secure is the meaning, is what your king is. And everyone who is subject to those idols are slaves. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, he tells the Galatian church, in the past, you didn't know God. In the past, you didn't know God, and because you didn't know God, he says, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. Bob Dylan had it right, theologian Bob Dylan. You're going to have to serve somebody. And J.D. Greer, he wrote a commentary called Exalting Jesus, First and Second Samuel. He writes about those, and maybe somebody even in this room, and I thought about it, let me put this in, because there may be somebody in this room going, you know what, I'm not enslaved to God, I'm not a Christian, and I'm not enslaved to anyone. Maybe that's you. Hear, hear this. He says this. Now, there are always some free spirits who feel like they have gamed the whole system. You're going to serve somebody? Uh-huh, not me. I don't need anything or anybody. I'm not enslaved to any of that stuff. I'm a free man. Really, he says. These are the same people who are afraid to commit in their relationships precisely because they are free they will not allow anything to stand in the way of their absolute independence. Independence independence becomes their king and they become its slave. They become its slave. They must have selfish independence to be happy. Everybody serves something. There are no exceptions. You're either enslaved to something that brings life, which is God, or you're enslaved to something that brings death, end quote. Even freedom could be a slavery. Idols demand sacrifice, and to keep them satisfied, we must sacrifice. And that's why when, we're, when a businessman or someone is seeking after money and finances, uh, if that's their idol, they'll gladly sacrifice integrity to climb the corporate ladder. Or sexual pleasure becomes your idol. You get tired of your husband or your wife. Or money gets your, you know, your idols, and, and you know whatever it could be, they're, they're harsh taskmaster and i think that's what the scripture is teaching us that there are fire that consumes they'll make you a slave you're going to take this going to take that going to take that for his this for his this for his this for his this but here's the good news here's the good news 
The good news is that the gospel overcomes and frees us from idolatry. In the gospel, Jesus says to us, you did fail me, you sinned against me, but instead of destroying you, I'll let myself be destroyed on the cross for you. Instead of demanding sacrifice, Jesus says, I will become that substitutionary sacrifice for you. In Jesus, unlike idols, we find the only God that when we have him and find our ultimate satisfaction in him and treasure him, he satisfies us. And when we fail, he forgives us. The request for a king, the ramifications of the request, and finally, the rejection. Look at verse 19. Again, the word of the Lord. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, 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 no. I hear you. No, thank you. There shall be a king over us that we also may be like the other nations. Now catch this. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people. He slapped them upside the head and did Nehemiah 13. No, no. He He repeated them. He went back to prayer. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go, every man to his city. Now we get the reason. They wanted a king. They they want a king. They want a king to judge them, which means not only again, not just a bench, to lead them. The prophet of God wasn't enough. The word of God wasn't enough. But more specifically, we want a king that will fight our battles. He would do, in other words, what the Lord had already done, chapter 7. This king will do for us. Now we belong to the rest of the nations. We look just like them. And from from the earliest days, God has showed himself, as I mentioned, as the king of his people. He revealed his commands. He gave them suitable leaders. And you know what this is a picture of? This is a picture of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, like the Israelites of Samuel days, attempt to cross over that divinely ordained boundary, that place that they're not supposed to go, in order to be somebody, to become something that they were not created to be. They were not satisfied with what God had done. They did not trust his provision and where God placed them. So did Israel. And Adam and Eve, too, also longed to be like God. The elders of Israel longed to be like the other nations. Like Adam and Eve, all of their needs were cared for. They had a place to live. They had meaning, they had purpose, they had boundaries. They were secure. But now, they want something else. Someone else. God wasn't enough. Their protector and their provider just wasn't enough. And demanding a king, many times I think is, easy, is an easy way out. Because then it fails. You, you, you don't have to take personal responsibility. It's their fault. They led us into battle. We got crushed. It's their fault. And let me tell you, when you're at a place and God says to you, I hear your prayer and and you can have what you want, but you better be careful what you ask for. That's scary. Psalm 106. But they soon forgot his works, God's works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He, God, gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. Be careful what you ask for. 
Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary mentions four things. I just want to, if you want to jot these down, maybe I can put them up somewhere. It's just four things when we talk about this relationship with God and, and rejecting God and wanting another God. He says this, number one, we, I, I thought this was good. He says, we have a tendency to assess our problems. They're, they're looking at a battle, looking at security, they're looking at uh, being safe. We have a tendency to assess our problems mechanically, not spiritually. What he means is that when we face trouble, a lot of times we want to just change some method, some technique. We need to pray more. I need to read my Bible more. Now, that may be true, but sometimes it's not change of method. It's called repent from your sin. Sometimes we just want to change our methods. Number two, instead of looking to God for help, we're more interested in prescribing what form God must help us. Lord, we need your help, and we want it this way. We want to beat the Philistines, but we want it this way. We want to have a king to do it. We don't want to trust in you. He writes, how easy is it for an evangelical to look for a new gimmick rather than cry out for a new heart? Ouch. Number three, God will sometimes give us our requests to our own peril. Okay, you want that? Here it is. And sometimes God saying yes to your prayer, according to this passage, is not a sign of his favor, but giving you what your stubborn heart wants. In light number four, in the current situation, danger, Israel's request seemed perfectly rational. <laughs> Have you ever prayed and seen and asking for something that's perfectly rational? It makes sense. <laughs> oh, man, this is killing me. Yet it's not the will of God. You want a king? Be careful what you ask for. You might get it, and you might regret it. You want to find your satisfaction and contentment and pleasure and your wholeness the way that other people find it? Okay. Not going to work. And I see this a lot, more than I, probably in my own life and the life of those around me. They, 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 they're, they're so caught up in what they think and what they see, what God wants, and, and, and you know, I... I, I don't want to, you know, sometimes it's a happy thing. And you're like, you're really, a, you have a really deceitful heart just like me. Like, you got to be really careful. It's just because it seems like a happy thing. It may not be a God thing. It may not be according to this. Our de- de- uh, deceitful hearts will, will show us something that's maybe not right. Samuel talked to them. We have to, we have to, we have to be open Open to the counsel of God's people. We have to be open to the wisdom of God's people. We need to be open to the consequences of the long-term decisions we make. We need to be open to what others will tell us and to prayer and through scripture and not be led and deceived. Sometimes God grants us a request that we find out down the road. It was his discipline because we were not seeking really after him. Sometimes it's his discipline because we were not really seeking after him. He is teaching us because he loves us a valuable lesson because our hearts were stubborn. There's another time in ancient Israel. There was another time that they requested for a king and rejected the king of kings, the ultimate king. There was a time when Israel rejected the Lord as their king. It's in the New Testament. It was Pilate came to Jesus before he was crucified and said, are you king of the Jews? 
Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate couldn't get his head wrapped around that. So he brought Jesus out and he beat him. Flogged him and bound him. And then he brought him out before the nations. Again, in John 19, it's the sixth hour. Pilate said to the Jews, to the nation, behold your king. They cried out what? Away! Away! Crucify him! Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And their response is remarkable. The chief priest, the leader of the Israelite nation said, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate said, crucify him. Dr. Carson By vehemently insisting they have no king but Caesar, they're not only rejecting Jesus' Messiah, messianic claims, they are abandoning Israel's Messiah. Their hope, as a matter of principle, rejecting any claim, they have no king but Caesar, and finally disowning the kingship of the Lord himself, end quote. This cry of derision from the Israel people and this rejection is simply the Jews joining the whole world you and I, in rejection of the God-sent Messiah. He came to his own, but his own knew him not. Every one of us who fail to give worship and honor to God is showing that they and me and you have no king but Caesar. And our idol, our Caesars, will not bring freedom but slavery. Jesus said anyone who sins, practices sin is a slave to sin. And hear what you need to see. And I'm going to wrap it up now. Listen carefully. Caesar thinks he is free. The Israelites think and act like they are free. They are free to bind, beat, flog, and crucify the king of kings. But Jesus is the one that is truly free. They are the ones that are bound. You see, in this world, thrones of places of power Crosses are the summit of powerlessness and helplessness. But the king of kings comes and freely lays down his life. And Jesus says, yes, I am the true, I am the better king. But I've come not to live on a throne, but to die on a cross. Not to gain power, but to give up power. Not to rule, but to serve. I'm not going to gain power by force, but to give up my power by laying down my life. This is how I will defeat evil. This is how I will set you free from bondage. This is how I will make everything right. A king who lays aside his heavenly glory. A king who was born in a manger. A king who said the birds have nests, the foxes have holes. The son of man has no place to lay his head. A king who would lay down his life on behalf of sinners like you and me. A king who would bear our sins on his body on the cross. A king who would die the accused death, the the cursed death of covenant breaker, who would leave this world broken, stripped, hoisted on a cross. Listen, so that you and I can be free from idols. So that you and I can be free from idols that enslave us. So you and I can be free from idols that demand our sacrifice and deliver only death. It is Jesus Christ, listen, who offers to you and to me this morning his life, not as a repressive king sitting on a throne, but a servant a savior full of grace and mercy and liberation. Two options for you this morning. 
You can say, I don't want this man king over me. I have no king. But we all do. Or you could submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and bow your knee to the king of kings who sets us free, who forgives us, whose mercy and grace will endure forever. 1 Samuel 8 will lead to the anointing of Samuel, first king of Israel. And their desire we see and their decision is born from idolatry because the people wanted to be just like everybody else. What about you this morning? Will you submit to the king of kings? Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you say to him, here is where my heart really is. Lord, destroy that place. I worship you and you alone. You and you alone. Be careful what you ask for. Father, all we have is Christ. Lord, one of your servants said that our hearts are idol factories. It is a battle that we all contend with regularly. So we're asking, Father, as we worship you right now, that you would destroy the idols in our lives. By the power of your spirit, by the beauty of your son, by the glorious gospel truth, we pray, Father, that you would do a great work. And that today we will worship Jesus above all things. And Father, maybe there's someone here that has never done that before, and this song and this message and your word will bring them to the place of complete surrender. Father, we surrender to you. You are our good God. You love us and care for us, and you lead us into joy.